0: Welcome to My PhD, the newest show of the Hopkins Biotech Podcast Network. My PhD is a show for you, by you, where students at any level can tell us about the amazing science that they are working on and other interesting experiences while doing their PhD. If you are at Hopkins, look up in your email for a link to the Google form to sign up to record your own personal podcast. If you are not at Hopkins, we want to hear from you too. Find the link to sign up at our website, hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com or in the description of this episode. I am your host, Gustavo Carrizo, and I am joined today by my guest, McCain Sharf. McCain is a fifth-year PhD student in the Department of Population, Family, and Reproductive Health at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and she is conducting her PhD project under supervision of Dr. Terry Powell, trying to identify how multiple levels of support interact to influence positive sexual health among U.S. adolescents, by analyzing national representative surveys. McCain is a mother of two young children, both born during her PhD, and has been actively involved with the Department of Population, Family, and Reproductive Health, advocating at the department and school level for diversity inclusion, student parents, and has also been involved with public health students for reproductive justice. Hi, McCain. We are very happy to have you today, and thank you for joining us.
1: Good morning. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Yeah, and before we jump into the details of your PhD and all the different initiatives that I mentioned before, why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and also how you decided to do a PhD in public health?
1: Sure, yeah. um, So I've been thinking a little bit about my journey um, since we spoke last. And I think my journey to public health Started when I was um, an undergrad student my senior year at Smith College, which I'm coming up on my 15th reunion. So that was a while ago. Uh, and I had been thinking I was going to do clinical psychology um, and go on and, and get potentially a doctorate in that. Um, and I took a course, a couple courses in my senior year, one in health behavior and then one actually interestingly a biology course about breast cancer that also sort of incorporated some of the cultural aspects and that's sort of I have my own family history of, of breast cancer and I was hearing and learning about all these things and feeling like my peers around me were, were a, a campus full of young women and, and I don't know this and others don't know this and sort of that spurred this feeling of of, of wanting everyone to be sort of more empowered with knowledge about their own health. Um, and so, you know, I had a circuitous journey from since then. Um, did after graduating, did a little bit of my um, own research around that, the breast cancer issue still at Smith that summer after, um, went on to Georgetown to try and get some more research experience and worked in their cancer control program. Um, my boss was a psychologist, um, but we were working closely with genetic counselors and looking at family communication around BRCA um, 1 and 2. And I got a lot of of important research experience through that, but decided that wasn't sort of the area that I wanted to, to keep going in um, and started a master's at, at Georgetown at that point. Um, the master's is in biomedical science policy and advocacy, and that's just because it was the closest thing to public health that they had, and um, Georgetown was going to pay for my master's, and so I was I did that part-time, and um, happened to meet my, my now husband there, and he got into medical school in New Mexico, where he is from, and I moved there with him during his med school and got much more in, involved in sort of the practice side of things. I worked closely with school-based health centers across the state, um, doing quality improvement initiatives, and working within the healthcare system to sort of try and figure out how to provide the best care possible for young people in in New Mexico. And through that experience, sort of realized that adolescent health was a passion of mine. Um, It really incorporated sort of the preventive piece, the reproductive and women's health piece. and, um, I saw that there was a lot of opportunity sort of to make some, some headway in that area and often a sort of unrepresented group, uh, when we think about public health. And so I started applying to programs actually with mostly policy programs, PhD policy programs in public health, um, but did find the population, family, reproductive health department here at Hopkins. And, you know, they had a specific track around adolescent health and, I was applying for my um, doctoral studies at the same time that my husband was applying for residency and it you know worked out that I got into Hopkins Hopkins um, and he started um, a residency at Georgetown in DC. and so we were close enough that we could, could live in the same place and I commuted up um, for the first for the first couple of years. But yeah, that's how I, that's how I got here.
0: Yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. It's a very interesting background, that one that you have. And I just want to ask you a little bit more about um, your supervisor because I know that uh, Dr. Powell, she has extensive experience collaborating with different institutions and promoting adolescent well-being, um, but also preventing teen pregnancy, um, studying HIV, and many other things. And so it's really um, interesting for, for me to hear about um, how it's working under her supervision and, and also like what is your project about? and how is the, tab, the type of research done there in public health because compare with the ones that we all the different students that we were interviewing before where is everything like related with with biotechnology or cancer research or more like the bench side of things um how really it works in your in your fields and also if you can walk us a little bit about the process of how do you do your research um from scratch and what is the type of Resources or sources um, that you use for conducting that type of research um, that would be really, I think, valuable for uh, for the community here at Hopkins to hear about um, how is the research done in public health.
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, yeah. I think it definitely helps to sort of talk about what a, what a PhD in my department looks like because I think it is it's different than than some of the folks that have been on before. Um, and I have been very lucky, lucky to work under, um, be advised by Terry Powell and work, you know, I, I do think of her as a colleague and she's done some really interesting work, um, especially about thinking about where we sort of reach, we reach adolescents, where they are. Um, so both in churches and in libraries and, um, yeah, and so it's, that's, that's been fun to sort of, um, see how our interests and backgrounds, um, align. And I've worked with her a little bit on some of her projects, um, But so so the way that a PhD works in um, my department, PFRH, is that you spend your first two years doing coursework um, at the School of Public Health with all of the students that are, you know, there. And there are certain requirements you have to meet as part of the PhD um, and as part of your um, specific area of study. And a year and a half in, we take our comprehensive exams, which are, are written in an oral part, and then we finish our coursework after the second year and start developing a proposal for our dissertation. And so we come up with a innovative research question and typically three aims that sort of get at answering that question. And then either find a data set that's available through us, uh, to us through, um, you know, a project that's already happening at Hopkins. So maybe you work as a research assistant and then you get to know sort of a project and there's data available you and a question that hasn't previously been asked and so that that's one thing you can do or if you have a question that isn't um you know part of an ongoing project in the in the department or at the school then you can find a nationally um available or publicly available a data set that might be able to help you answer your question and so that's what I did um and like I said I'm interested in sort of the preventive piece but also the the idea that we often focus in public health on um, the bad outcomes, right? So that and then so then we back up from that and we think about the risks. So I wanted to sort of think about um, the outcome that I was using in in my research from a positive and holistic um, way, um, and not just look at teen pregnancy and STI rates, which is often what we look at um, when we think about sexual health for adolescents and the data are looking good for teen pregnancy, but they're sort of mixed for STIs. And so there's something going on there beyond, you know, what we're able to measure right now in the way that we that we typically do. And so um, I'm combining two national data sets, one that, uh, is, dist- that is given in um, high schools and um, that asks about a lot of risk behaviors, but including sort of this um, sexual health. Um, behaviors and decisions. And, um, and then I'm also using um, the National Survey of Family Growth, which is a household survey that's asked, um, that is is, um, implemented um, across a a wide span of ages. So from 15 um, up to in the 40s, and it's more, much more focused on sort of fertility and decisions around family planning and um, relationships. And but there are some interesting questions about um, what what sort of um, conversations young people are having with parents, and also what sort of sexual education they're getting in schools. And so um, by combining those two data sets, I'm able to sort of look at policy level, state policy level um, support. Um, around access to care and um, decision-making around care uh, and, and sex ed requirements at the state level, and these outcomes kind of from a different, frame, more positive frame, and then adding in additional levels using NSFG, looking at family communication and um, community and school sex ed, uh, and then sort of using the, the statistical analysis, analyses that we have available to us to sort of try and figure out what is what's going on and how we can best support adolescents, um, as they strive towards, uh, positive sexual health, um, in their adolescent years and, and beyond.
0: Yeah, I see. Um, but before you identified all of these different levels of support, when you're starting with the data from scratch, um, and like choosing which type of data was useful, or which the one that you, uh, wouldn't use, um, what was the current state of sexual health among adolescents in the U.S.? Because I assume that you all of the data you are using are data sets from from the U.S. adolescents.
1: Yeah. So, so the 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 current state is that um, from from a national perspective, the things that we know are based on the the questions that we're asking, and and really, it's these two these two surveys that are asked, like cor- sort of across the board. So. From a national perspective, we know that teen pregnancy rates are going down um, in a way that, you know, I think a lot of effort has been put into that sort of the, the risk behaviors that, that are related to that. And again, that's where a lot of the funding has been focused. Um, and so we're, we're doing well. We still we still have higher teen pregnancy rates than a lot of, of, of countries. Um, across the globe, and um, there are huge disparities in in those uh, pregnancy rates by geography and by um, socioeconomic uh, factors, as well as race and ethnicity. Um, and so, the other thing that we're seeing that's kind of interesting is that the STI rates, um, and we we look mostly at um, gonorrhea and chlamydia for young people, and they account for about a quarter of of the. Um, all all of the um, cases that we see in this country. Um, So they're higher than than the rest of the population um, just generally, but also we haven't sort of seen the same declines and we've seen some interesting trends, including some increases in recent years of STI rates. Um, And so when we look at sort of the picture of how, what is going on with sexual health for adolescents in this country, we see kind of a mixed message and also lots of disparities. And so what I'm trying to do is take the data we have available. And although I would love to ask more questions and if, you know, at some point maybe we will ask better questions, but with the data that we have available um, and if we think about it a little bit differently and and think about the ways that support at multiple levels could potentially interact or maybe compensate for um, the lack of it. So if you don't have a parent that you can talk to, but you do get good sex, ed or you live in a state where that makes the resources very um available to you is that is that going to um lead to positive outcomes even in the absence of not having a parent so kind of how can we think about um sort of the supports that we provide and and how we can do that in a way that ensures that the most adolescents get the most support that they yep. need for these positive outcomes
0: yeah definitely i think it's it's really important and that's why this episode is really—it's going to be really valuable for our listeners because we wanted to hear about um, what is public health doing and how is the research they are done and how this actually um, is going to improve on certain aspects in, in our society. And now, the first time that we met, you kindly shared with me many things that happened to you through your PhD. And no matter what um, science you do, a PhD is always tough. And at the same time, you are a woman in science. And so, first of all, I appreciate a lot that you uh, are willing to share um, those struggles with us. And and it would be great as well to hear about the different resources and help that you found here at Hawkins um, to really go through um, those things. And definitely, um, this is going to be very helpful um, for someone that is also in similar situations And and to hear from your experience. So that will be really great too um, that you can share that.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to, and and I appreciate the opportunity too. Um, I think sometimes it's easy to forget that as students we're humans too, and we bring our whole lives and all the things that come along with with um, You know, being being people in this in this sometimes hard world. So um, yeah, I mean, I so yes, I became a mother while it, while being you know, and I think both my husband and I took a little bit of a circuitous path to our uh, doctoral studies. And so we felt like, and both really wanted a family. Um, so felt, felt like it was important for us to kind of get started and maybe we're ambitious about our ability to, to do that. Well, while, while both being in training still um, but we have support networks through family and, and good friends that, and yeah, um, yeah, I think, you know, we've, we figured out how to make it work, but it hasn't always been easy. And I don't think that the systems are necessarily set up for families like ours. Um, so that's been challenging at times. Um, so I had my first, um, I found out that I was pregnant with my first son, Luca, um, shortly before I did my comprehensive exam. So I was, he was with me for those. Um, uh, and then, you know, I finished my, all my coursework and then he was born the summer after that. And so that sort of gave me a little bit of time to get to catch, you know, a breather and figure out daycare for him as I was sort of easing into the, the dissertation phase. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, the pandemic happened and life got a little bit, you know, and, and we were thinking about next steps and things were feeling good in our in our family despite all those things and so we we decided you know let's let's do this again and so um yeah I um I had my second son Jackson at the end of March uh about 10 days after I um did my preliminary um school wide exam which is sort of where we defend our proposal so I was really uh, cutting it close there but they have been with me for some big um some big hurdles across along the way. Um, and you know, I am so glad that they are part of our lives and I feel very lucky in many ways, um, that I've had the flexibility to take time. So after each of them, I took a leave of absence and that was sort of an easy thing to do, not a problem. Um, I have benefited from some of the um, programs that are, are, are established and sort of new. Um, so there's a, we'll, we'll, we'll include a link about sort of resources, sort of um, compiled resources for students that are parents, but things like um, a stipend for childcare, again, like taking that leave of absence, sort of as a parental leave without sort of the the same level of, of scrutiny that you would need to in, in other um, for other circumstances, uh, you know, COVID has also allowed that to happen, so it was sort of, sort of easy. Um, but I, I do think that the school is aware that that there are more ways that they could support parents, and I've had some some conversations with folks who are who are thinking about this. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's been good to be part of those conversations and to be thinking about how we might support better. And I will just say, my advisor and my department have been super supportive. And, um, my advisor is the the mother of a young child herself, which was helpful. She sort of could understand many of the things I was going through. Um, and yeah, my, you know, we, we often call ourselves a pop family and I sort of feel like a family. So I, I, i benefited from that for sure. Um, you know, the other thing that I struggled with throughout this, this program is, um, is mental health issues. And I came into this program with a history of anxiety and depression, but I also, um, throughout my, you know, five plus years in the program have had some, some mental health crises that, um, you know, were, were, were some, sometimes related to being in the PhD and sometimes not. So I think, you know, when I started in, in the PhD program, I was having pretty, pretty bad anxiety issues. Um, and I think part of that was stuff that was going on, sort of in my family, and some stressors, and having moved from New Mexico, and you know, my husband and I both starting training programs at the same time, um, and I hadn't been a full time student in so long, and I was in this really intensive, you know, program. We're on a quarter system, so things just go 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 really fast. Um, but I, you know, had experience from my own personal experience and knew that I needed support and, and actually reached out to a lot of the, and utilized a lot of the resources that are available to Hopkins. And sort of, as soon as I started reaching out, I I started learning about more um, resources. And again, I think uh, we'll, we'll include a link that, that sort of is a good sort of clearinghouse for those resources, but I would definitely recommend, you know, utilizing them because they're there. Everything from like, like a free access to the calm app to you know, my psychiatrist for a long time was was at Hopkins, um, so really a full range of of mental health and well being uh, resources available. Um, and the other thing is, I was really honest and open with my advisor about what was going on, so she knew sort of from the beginning that I was struggling, and she was always and it allowed me, although it was hard to have that conversation, especially just meeting her, it allowed me to sort of share with her as things were going up and down. Um, before the before COVID, I had another sort of um, rough rough time, but it was more around my mother had moved in, in with us and wasn't doing well. I was, you know, I was still trying to figure out how to be a mom. And so the sort of caregiving and parenting stuff that would be hard for anyone. Um, but again, I knew that the resources were there. And so I was able to like really pull from the Hopkins resources and support from advisors and also my cohort of just amazing women that um, have supported me along the way. And then I had Jackson and we moved and my husband started a fellowship and, uh, COVID was happening and my hormones were crazy. And so, um, and again, I don't, I mean, my hormones were what hormones do. They were not, you know, unrealistically crazy, but I think all of those factors together, um, did not help my mental health. And, um, I, I had really bad postpartum depression and anxiety and, I think the unfortunate thing that happened is that we moved away from Maryland. And so I didn't have access to a lot of the Hopkins resources in the same way, as well as some of the outside resources and community I had built. And so I was sort of trying to build this new community and get providers while I was in the middle of this, of this crisis. And the mental health care system um, can be challenging to navigate, especially when you're in a crisis. And so... I ended up um, being hospitalized at McLean Hospital for 10 days. And that was after a series of ER visits where it was like, we need help. We don't know where to go. This is where we're ending up. And I think in conversation with the doctors, it was like, okay, let's get you, let's get you this level of care so we can sort of reset and make sure that you're safe. And so did a med switch and got some intensive care and then got connected right after with, with, wonderful providers in the community and I really built up my my mental health team here um, and I had the the knowledge and again I was you know five years into my program and I had built relationships but my advisor you know I told her what was going on and she said don't worry about it I will take care of everything Hopkins wise don't worry about it and so what you know I didn't utilize the resources in the same way but I had the comfort of knowing that like They had my back and they were going to let me do what I needed to, to get better. Um, And here I am better and and ready to finish my dissertation.
0: And I'm really happy that you, you know, you find a way to go through all of this. And also that you're sharing this with us, because I think for sure, knowing that there are resources that you can uh, reach out and you can ask for help, because at the end it's fine asking for help, right? Um, You don't need to deal with everything by yourself. Um maybe sometimes we as a PhD student, even we think that we need to, you know, deal with everything and we need to have the capacity to solve everything. Um, and sometimes it's also coming from our own PIs or mentors, right? Well, we call them mentors. So I'm glad that you um, you also have, a, you know, a, like a supervisor that was really a mentor, but also, you know, always, so she was a mother and she understood the things you were going through and, and you have that support. And, and yeah so I just want to say a big thank you and I, it was really nice to, to meet you and, and thank you for, for applying for, um, for the podcast and I encourage everyone that wants to um, have a chat in this podcast as well to apply And so thank you so much
1: thank you and please feel free to, to reach out if I can be helpful in any way um, at any part of your journey I am, am more than happy to uh, email me I'm, I'm on Twitter probably email is the best way to, to get in touch with me but, but please do reach out
0: Thank you for tuning in. Don't forget to follow Hopkins Biotech Podcast on social media at Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter for updates about upcoming guests and visit us at hopkinsbiotechpodcast.com to check out our mission and full catalog of episodes. Also, check out the Google form at the link in the episode description to sign up for your own My PhD episode. I am Gustavo Carrizo. Thank you for listening.